0: Sorry, my cat is attacking me in this chair. <laughs> <laughs> Slight distraction. She's You're, trying to leap out the window onto the roof.
1: Your cat's not a fan of podcasts.
0: No, my cat fucking hates podcasts. I think <laughs> so rude of her. I work in podcasting now. I've uh, since February I've been doing supernatural and historical research for the podcast lore. Um, which has been quite fun. I am 100% filled with cursed information now. Like whatever room there was in my brain for like anything, not demented is long gone. And it's just like <laughs> full up now. It's just the most cursed shit you've heard in your entire life. So
1: I feel like that's probably a mixed bag. So many, so many, so many damn books. Hello and welcome to so many damn books. My name is Christopher, and this is a blessing, a curse, and a podcast, and I am so excited to be joined by Jenna Rose Nethercott. Jenna Rose, I am so glad to see you. We've had this long um, online friendship, and it's still online. We are still in the Zoom hyperspace, but here you are. I'm so excited to be meeting you. I
0: could be AI. You don't know.
1: (laughs) I guess you're right. You could be a a Dolly Um, brought to life. Dolly, too.
0: Yeah, there's no way for you to prove that I am not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Jenna Rose, you know, but I'm going to tell the people listening. Jenna Rose Nethercott is a writer and folklorist. Her first book, The Lumberjack's Dove, was selected by Louise Gluck as a winner of the National Poetry Series. She lives in the woodlands of Vermont beside an old cemetery, and she is about to, Thistlefoot is about to drop. I'm so excited to talk to you about it. We won't spoil anything for anybody listening. It is, I'm so excited about this book and that I got to read it early and welcome.
0: Thank you so much. I am excited too. It comes out this Tuesday, the Tuesday after we're having this interview. So I'm in crunch mode right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're, you're doing all sorts of prep um, for, your, for your tour and we are gonna get into that. But before we get that far, I wanted to tell you about the drink that I made inspired by your book. I wish I was drinking it with you. Bombas mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you are also giving to someone in need. There's a pair of Bombas socks for everything you do. They come in tons of options like comfy performance styles made with sweat wicking yarns, which means your feet stay cool while the rest of you works up a sweat. I have a few pairs of Bombas socks. They are my absolute favorite. Sometimes when the laundry's clean, they're the first thing I pull out because I'm so excited to wear them. And sometimes I'm so excited to wear them that I save them. I want to be wearing my Bombas socks when it's a special occasion. That's the sort of socks that Bombas makes, and they make all sorts of stuff. Bombas.com slash SMDB and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash SMDB for 20% off. Bombas.com slash SMDB. Now, on with the show.
0: Uh, I I want one. I'll have you'll have to write down the recipe for me, and then I can make myself one later.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, you can um, you can go with the rest of the listeners to so many damn books slash the damn bar, where all the recipes for every cocktail made are. Um, and so this one, I'm. It's called Safe Smoke. Ooh. And so there's a character in your book that curses people with a drink from his flask, and it's supposed to it doesn't taste like smoke, but it causes smoke beings to follow them. And it was, I've been obsessed with smoking cocktails recently. Um, I've been doing it just the old fashioned way with a torch and chips. Uh, But I also have this smoking tool that I used for the first time on this one. And I wanted to think of it as this is the, this is the antidote. This is the, this is what you should drink right afterwards if you don't want to have been cursed. So um, it's, uh, an ounce of fresh grapefruit juice, rye whiskey, which has that nice smoky flavor, um, an ounce of rosemary saffron simple syrup, maraschino luxardo liqueur, uh, and you shake that and stir it, and then you pour it over a smoke-filled glass. And uh, it looks like this. And it tastes amazing. It starts with this smoke, and that's you get that cherry smoke from from the wood chips that I used. And then every sip is sweet. So it's like the sweetness that comes through the smoke rather than cursed bitterness. Um,
0: oh my God, that's incredible. <laughs> I,
1: I would have loved to have been smoking this in front of you, um, but I am so glad that, that your book inspired this drink because it's one of my favorites that I've ever made.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> um,
1: and so if next time we are actually in person, I'm going to have to bring all of my accoutrements and serve you one.
0: Yes, please. That sounds so incredible. And I love the idea that it's like it didn't even occur to me that uh, the Long Shadow Man's flask would be inspiration for a drink. But of course it would be. It's like a featured beverage. And yeah, I love the idea that this is the the antidote to that. That's really fun.
1: (laughs) Well, I wanted to make just what it might because I was thinking about like what it tastes like, but I I don't know. I don't want to feel I don't want to feel cursed while mm-hmm. i'm recording i want to feel like the curse is being lifted
0: yeah absolutely i feel like it it describes as tasting like a like burning hay and like rotting carcasses of like farm animals so it's like <laughs> probably not the most pleasant cocktail uh, anyway
1: <laughs> uh see and that's just not what you want your cocktails described like that's not what some somebody- if you're sure, making hey, that not. as a bartender. I don't think that's really what you're going for. <laughs>
0: no, yours sounds way better. <laughs> I should actually go back in and edit and just switch it out for that. <laughs> are okay, you are you drinking
1: anything special for the recording or
0: I didn't I didn't get anything. I mean I could go downstairs and I, I'm a Manhattan girl. I I love a Manhattan and there's um this amazing vermouth purveyor in the town where I live, this guy who makes his own uh, vermouth, and it's so good, and so I always mix these Manhattans. I like a I like Manhattan with bourbon instead of rye, and I also use this like locally distilled vermouth. That is just always like really exciting, strange flavors with like rosemary and like lavender and rose petals and all these wow. and spices and herbs. So, yeah.
1: So you've got you've got a vermouth guy.
0: I've got, you know, <laughs> everyone needs their their local farmers market vermouth guy.
1: <laughs> well, I'd love to get into the next part of the show, which is when uh, the celebration of. Capitalist Desire, a.k.a. What Did You Buy? 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 I bought a couple great things that I am really excited about. Actually, this got sent to me, um, this novel called A Cigarette Lit Backwards by Taya Hachich Vlahovic, and it's about the Two thousands punk scene in North Carolina about someone just trying to get into that as a teenager and the mishaps because of course the punk scene is no place for you know the impressionable teen or maybe it is maybe you need to maybe you're always gonna learn these lessons and then the other book that I got which uh just came out at the beginning of the month uh I had to go pick up Stephen King's new book A Fairy Tale I love when he's in his most fairy tale mode. I think The Eyes of the Dragon is my favorite Stephen King book. Um and so it's really exciting to me that he is back in that well. Um Jenna Rose, what about you? Have you bought anything recently?
0: Uh yeah, I've been buying <laughs> well, so I'm deep in like tour prep mode and my tour is this absolutely ridiculous Basically, I can't do a book tour in a normal way like a normal person. I've never been able to. And so instead, I was like, you know what would be really logical would be for me to spend the next four months on an elaborate puppetry tour. Oh so. My God. Yeah, so I. In the book Thistlefoot, uh, the characters were raised in a puppeteering family and they're on the road with a bunch of puppets with the traveling puppet show. And I was like, well, I couldn't let them have all the puppetry fun. So I partnered with. Um, a couple of my friends who I can talk more about later, uh, to create this incredible touring puppet show, all housed in a puppet theater that's shaped like a house on chicken legs.
1: Oh my God.
0: And yeah, so that's what, like, that's all I've been thinking about all I've been doing, all I've been working on over the past month and everything that I've bought recently has been like supplies for this puppetry extravaganza. So I like, went out and had to buy double-sided fusible interfacing and, like, yellow fabric so that I could cut out the chicken's legs and, like, applique them onto the tablecloth that this house sits on. Um, and I'm, like, constantly going back and forth to the hardware store for, like, odds and ends to to make these puppets work. Um, so that's most of what I've been purchasing lately is a, a very practical uh, puppet parts. Um, Yeah. And I also, today I bought this candle. Where did I put that? Oh yeah. I'm excited about this. I got this candle. I don't even know the brand, but it smells exactly like chai tea. So that's really nice. And uh, a friend of mine just came over uh, right before this interview and I was like, check out this candle I got. And she smelled it and she said, oh, it smells exactly like big red chewing gum. (laughs) So uh, yeah, those are, those are my purchases right now.
1: A candle really and, and puppetry supplies. Yeah. Ooh, I love it. That's um... it's a
0: twee collection, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm leaning into my personal branding here.
1: And I mean, that's, that's as good a, a setup as any to, to go into your novel. I mean, you sort of just talked about it a little bit, but Thistlefoot is your debut novel. And I would love to, what, what is it about for the people who haven't read it yet? I mean, obviously puppetry family, but I feel like that's...
0: that's There's more going on. Yeah,
1: there's a lot more going on.
0: (laughs) So essentially, Thistlefoot is the story of Isaac and Bella Yaga, who are two contemporary Jewish American siblings that learn they are to receive a mysterious inheritance. The two of them have been estranged for a long time, but they're brought back together at a shipping yard in Brooklyn to pick up this, this inheritance, uh, which they know nothing about, all they know is that it comes from their twice great grandmother who they never met and is long dead and lived in Russia, what is now Ukraine. And so they show up and they are shocked to discover that this house is not land. It's not money. It's not, you know, regular heirlooms or jewelry, but it's actually a living sentient house, uh, standing tall on a pair of chicken legs. And meanwhile, the story also dips into the past to follow their twice great grandmother who lived in this house, who happens to be, for those familiar, the sort of Slavic folk witch Baba Yaga. Uh, And in my version of the story, Baba Yaga is actually a Jewish woman living in a shtetl called Gerenkrovka Uh, in the months leading up to a pogrom in 1919. So it sort of weaves these two uh, timelines together and tells the story of this family and kind of the ancestral hauntings that follow them in part in the form of this walking house, as well as the sinister figure that, unbeknownst to the Yaga siblings, is following close behind.
1: It moves so smoothly through these things. It's, It's so gripping. It's one of these books that as soon as it starts, you really, you, you're always a little bit off kilter. And I really loved that feeling. Um, I know you just spent a, the, the book explaining it, but what, what, why Baba Yaga? What, what drew you to the, the Baba Yaga folk tale um, as something to adapt for your own use?
0: I think I was always drawn to that figure and that story. I love the, I love the contradictions within her as a character. You know, she'll, maybe she'll like give you a candle that will help solve all your problems and lead you out of this dark woods, or maybe she'll eat your babies and then post their skulls on her porch as lanterns. Like, you never know what you're gonna get with this lady. And I, I really like sort of the tension of monstrosity Um, I think that there's always a lot of excitement and a lot of potential in uh, the volatility of a character that has a lot of good and a lot of darkness in them at once. Um, And I also really have always been drawn to her house on chicken legs, specifically. I'm I'm someone who has always been like basically been unable to sit still. Um, I, all through my twenties, I didn't live in one place for more than three or four months at a time. I'm constantly moving, constantly traveling. And I have, but I'm also a nester and I always really have this longing for home and for like burrowing into a space that feels mine. And so to me, uh, Baba Yaga's house, which Thistlefoot is what I named the house. Um, Thistlefoot is kind of the dream for me. Where it's, a, it's a home, um, but it doesn't have to sit still. It can It's just as restless as you are. And uh, when I first started writing the book, I was on tour for my first book, uh, The Lumberjack's Dove, which is a book-length narrative poem. And I was living out of the trunk of my Honda Fit, which I would transformed into this tiny camper, and that also had a puppetry performance element to the tour. So I was driving around America for eight months straight, in a new city every two days just performing out of the back the trunk of my car and i guess it, it made sense that the thing i was fantasizing about was this like beautiful old house on chicken legs running across america
1: that is a that is a lovely image um and i also just like the the idea that you're looking at um the like old folk images of the Baba Yaga house and thinking like, God, I want to live there, you know, uh-huh. like, I, <laughs> you know, like the way that other people are looking at like vacation homes in um, Aruba or something, you're looking at that Thistlefoot house and being like someday.
0: someday. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And then the, uh, The other element of the story is um, based on my own family's ancestral history. So the fact that I took the Baba Yaga narrative and folklore and transplanted it into this Jewish shtetl in 1919 Um, was based directly on my own family's immigration story on my mother's side, where my great-grandparents came to the United States uh, to escape pogroms in their small shuttle, which was called Rotmastrivka. And um, Gerenkrovka in Thistlefoot is directly based on Rotmastrivka, and all of the things that happen in Gerenkrovka are directly taken from a historical event that occurred in Rotmastrivka. So it was also sort of a way of me... Processing and learning about my own ancestral bloodline.
1: Wow. Did you find out stuff that you hadn't known previously as you were working on the book?
0: Definitely. I knew very, very little um, when I when I began. And so the research that I did, I mean, like, as you know, having read it, I'm not gonna give anything away, but like there's quite a Quite, there's some dramatic things that happen in this this small town, and I didn't know the details of any of it. But I ended up actually finding a firsthand account of this this event um, from Rotmistrivka, and uh, so it's beat for beat the same the same things that happened. And I didn't yeah I didn't know any of it. Um, my my great grandparents when they were 16 their parents put them on a boat to America and were like good like good luck have a good life and never saw them again um and that's how my family ended up here and like that was all I knew really I I didn't know anything else so it was it was really interesting because Isaac and Bellatine in the novel really don't know much at all about their past um and, you know, they're they're culturally Jewish-ish, but they're not religious. And, you know, they're Jewish by blood, but that's about it. And that's the same, you know, with me and my brother. Um, it, we grew up in a very, like, secular household, and we really didn't know much at all about our, our family history. And so as Isaac and Bellatine were learning about their family history, I was simultaneously having the same process happen with my knowledge base because in order to research for them, I had to also be researching for me.
1: In the research realm, it it also seems like the Baba Yaga story would have all sorts of tendrils and things. Um, that, was there anything surprising about the story that that you found while you were looking into that side of it?
0: I tried to make a combination of like, pre-existing Baba Yaga stories that I would then put a new spin on and like kind of invented folklore that I was adding to that menagerie of tales. So, I mean, yeah, there's so many infinite variants of this character and her story, which is one of the reasons I love working with folklore is I feel, it feels so organic to me to take these stories and then kind of watch something new birth from it because it just feels like a natural part of the folklore process. Like I'm just contributing in the same way that all these tale tellers throughout time have contributed and altered and adapted that same story and that same character. Um, in terms of things that I was surprised about, I mean, I guess I just, I discovered some really interesting folkloric figures as I was doing this research. Um, for example, I wanted to incorporate Jewish folklore into the Baba Yaga folklore, which is not traditionally a Jewish folktale. It's a general sort of Russian and Slavic folktale. And uh, I discovered things like this bird called the Ziz, which is a Jewish folk figure that is so huge that its feet stand on the bottom of the ocean and its head touches the heavens. And when it lays an egg and cracks, it drowns 60 satyrs. <laughs> I was like, that guy's great. Hell Yeah.
1: And uh,
0: I have this book of old, you know, over here somewhere, this book of uh, Jewish folklore, old Jewish folklore, where I read about this one figure who... Uh, this demon that can like reach out to open a door and his arm just keeps going and going and going. and so I snagged that and put that into the book because I was like, that's the creepiest damn thing I've ever heard. Let's go. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was just it was a really fun kind of weaving experience of like invented stories, Jewish folklore, Jewish history, Slavic mythology, et cetera, et cetera
1: well it, it it really came through. I was so drawn to the parts that were specifically narrated by Thistlefoot. What drew you to use second person in the book?
0: Right. So you're talking about uh, how in some chapters of the novel, uh, Thistlefoot, the house itself, becomes the narrator. And those are the chapters that take place in the past in this shtetl. Um, so he tells the story of this town as if it was a folktale, or they tell the story of this town. Th- Thistlefoot isn't gendered. Um, but to me, honestly, those were the chapters that came the most naturally for me. Because Mm -hmm. as a poet, um, I'm used to more lyrical writing, I'm used to direct address. um, And I also am a folklorist. So leaning into a folklore voice, sort of a folktale teller voice is very much in my wheelhouse, where as a new novelist, um, it was a real interesting learning experience and experiment to be writing just sort of straightforward fiction in the Isaac and Bellatine chapters, just sort of straightforward, close third chapters. But yeah, with the Thistlefoot chapters, I always looked forward to when I got to write one of them because it, that, that voice is like my most natural storytelling voice at its root. And then I kind of tinted that voice for the setting by reading a lot of Isaac Bashevist Singer and Sholem Aleichem. Who uh, wrote? Who he wrote the uh, the Tevye the Milkman stories that Fiddler on the Roof is based on. Mm. So these other authors who were telling these folktale esque but fully like literature based stories set in the same place and using this kind of like Jewish folk voice. So it was kind of my natural folklore voice, my natural poet voice, mixed with kind of their influence as well.
1: I did feel like I recognized that folklore voice because. I am a massive fan of your project that you put out. I believe it came out um, during quarantine, where d- the months of quarantine, Liana fled the cranberry bog. Um, the story and cootie catchers that you put out with Nine Pin Press, which felt very, very much more in the folklore esque world. I-, I would love to just rewind back to that for a second and, and ask a little bit about how that project came together because it's a wild thing.
0: Absolutely. I'm so glad that you like that. It's I feel like that project really sort of flew under the radar. And I love it so much. And it's so weird and fun. And I just feel very lucky that like someone let me do that. <laughs> so basically, it's a book told in 26 loose leaf fold up cootie catchers or fortune tellers, the kind you would have made like on the school bus or at a slumber party. Um, the kind that I certainly made on the school bus. Or <laughs> And the way it came about was actually at a slumber party. So for my best friend, I think it was her 25th birthday, um, she had a, a slumber party, blanket fort themed birthday party in her shotgun apartment in New Orleans. And so we built these elaborate blanket forts and then all of our friends crowded into them. And we had this party and we were reminiscing about like the blanket forts of yore. (laughs) And as we did, we started talking about cootie catchers and me and my friend Bobby D'Atrani were like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a book told in Cootie Catchers? Like, I wonder if anyone's ever done that. And Bobby is an illustrator and a classically trained realist painter. Um, And so both of us were like getting really excited about that idea. Like, what would it be like to have a book in Cootie Catchers? And I was like, I'm sure somebody's done that though. And I got home and I looked it up and like, no one had done that. So I got really excited. I was like, oh my God, I came up with a new idea. That's, It's Like that never happens, you know, Um, especially working in folklore, like new ideas are not. (laughs) So I got really pumped. And um, I kind of just sat on the idea for a couple of years and didn't really do anything with it, but it was always in the back of my mind. And then meanwhile, I was a big fan of Nine Pin Press. Um, Jedediah Berry had put out this really wonderful little book told in uh, shuffleable playing cards where each card has a different little sort of like prose poem on it, essentially. It's a story about a haunted family Mm -hmm. uh, called The Family Arcana. And it's really cool. And I had my eye on this little press who specifically make, uh, they specifically publish spooky stories in the form of games which I just thought was the coolest thing ever. So I ended up putting together a little pitch where I had Bobby illustrate a a single fold-up cootie catcher, which is the first one that ended up being in the book, Leanna Mm. from the Cranberry Bog." where the story is sort of like a little choose your own adventure where depending on which flap you open, it alters what happens in that step of the story. Um, And I had Bobby illustrate it. And then I put a little pitch together, put it in an envelope and mailed it to nine pin press. Um, And they responded pretty much right away being like, we love this. We would love to talk to you about this. I think we should totally team up. And so we did, and it was great. They were so enthusiastic and so sweet. Um, yeah, Jedediah and Emily, who run Nine Pin, are the loveliest, most creative people, and kind of the rest was history. And then Bobby ended up illustrating the other twenty-six, um, and yeah, the two of us were just working on that for for a winter. <laughs> It's, We're writing them in a weird context. Like, I think Bobby was on tour with his band and he lives. Oh, so, OK, in Thistlefoot, you know how the Duskbreaker Band lives in this black spray painted school bus? Yes. That's Bobby's actual school bus.
1: Ah. So
0: yeah. So he was just like in this spray painted black school bus driving around the country playing the accordion and then like going back into the school bus and illustrating these cootie catchers at night. <laughs> I was living in my friend's basement in Somerville and it was freezing cold and I would go sit. She had like a like a dry sauna in her basement, and I would go sit in this sauna until I was like delirious, and then I'd like write the next section of the goody catcher. <laughs> so like they have a strong vibe for
1: sure. <laughs> Yeah. So there's sauna delirium yes. you know, baked into these. Exactly. Oh, that's see, I'm gonna have to read it again and see if I get any like sweaty <laughs> hotness from it. Exactly. You worked in poetry you worked in cootie catchers those
0: potential genres yeah right that right. america's favorite genres
1: <laughs> the, when people think of forms they're like poetry cootie, cootie catchers catch. uh and, and but now but now that what was it like then to have this all this space to stretch out and you know 400 pages of a book you know it seems like that's a lot of space um how did you approach that expansiveness? And what was it like to not feel constrained by, you know, having to fit onto a square that was going to be made into a smaller squares?
0: It's so much space. It's (laughs) yeah. The whole time I was like, there's so many fucking words in here. Like this is a reasonable number of words. I think it clocked in at like 122,000 words or something. I'm just like, that seems like maybe too many words. Who knows?" Um, What's interesting though about that, that writing process, like, you know, you're saying the the expansiveness of it versus the the constrictiveness in a way of um of poetry or cootie catchers or what yeah. have you. And yeah, so what's interesting about that is I actually felt more constrained by the novel form than I do in a shorter form. So I was really surprised to to find that the more space I had, the The longer I, or the harder I felt like it was to fit in the information I needed to fit in. Um, And the reason for that is in a poem, you can just say what you mean. (laughs) You can just come out and say what this poem is about um, in a very direct, uh, very concise way. While in a novel, you know, your characters can't learn anything until they've earned it. Nothing can happen until all these other things have happened first to lead you to this point. So I couldn't just say the thing I had to, um, you know, there would be multiple chapters of build before a payoff, um, mm-hmm. because that's how a good story works. And that's how, uh, characters naturally develop and learn and change. Um, which made me realize that I actually was, I was finding that I was having trouble fitting in all the things I wanted to fit in because I couldn't just say it in a sentence. Um, I had to say it in like three or five chapters Um, where, I mean, I do think I fit a lot in there at the end of the
1: day. (laughs) It's it's packed to the gills. So
0: some, some reviewers have referred to most of our reviews are super, super positive, like really excitingly positive. Uh, one or two have referred to it as overly ambitious, <laughs> which, you know, I'll take it. It is overly ambitious. You're right. Uh, but yeah, and I I think of a, a poem, I have this analogy that I sometimes talk about where a poem is like, a it's a lame analogy, but a, a poem is like a zip drive, a zip file, where you're taking this incredibly massive, amorphous truth or feeling or experience and and you're distilling it down, you're compressing it into something that's small enough to fit in a pocket on like a single page. Mm. However, the tricky bit is that when it is read, it has to be able to expand in the mind back to its original size. And that's where the real difficulty in the craft comes in is it's easy to compress something, but it is not easy to compress something that can then re-expand when read in the mind um a novel is different than that Mm. a novel is not compressed so it is just it is kind of what you see is what you get with a novel in many ways
1: wow I do love the idea that like our brains are you know like wind zip (laughs) unzipping things for our mind to like expand something that we had just had on the page that's a that's a really beautiful technological um analogy I feel like actually there's a weird old world new world vibe in this book they're really um you, you know of course you've got like literally the um historical storyline versus the modern storyline but even isaac and Bellatine both feel like characters out of time in a way um but it's still very much in the modern world there's cell phones there is the internet uh I, and isaac in particular even bellatine is like what are you doing like you look like you're like trying to be charlie chaplin or something um and i and i loved that sort of feeling why did you want to put it in the modern world specifically what what does what do cell phones and and all of those things add for you or was it just the only way that the
0: story could have been told to me i think I really like the, I mean, sort of the same way I like the tension in the juxtaposition of Baba Yaga's sort of dangerous and kind sides. I really like the juxtaposition of these folkloric kind of monstrous tropes up against modernity. Um, And I think that that tension is interesting and exciting as well as that I like to take the world that we live in and kind of heighten it. Um, I think people, think of folklore as being behind them somehow. Um, when in reality, like folk culture and folklore and these stories endure to this day and are just as much a part of our lives here as they were would have been a hundred years ago. Um, and so, yeah, so to continue those stories into the present to me is just an exciting way to kind of drive that point home as well as, experiment with like what would it look like if these figures who we usually encounter in a very specific location in time and space were transplanted somewhere else Mm. um and it's also like fun i don't know i think it's it's fun to be able to write in contemporary vernacular it's fun to have characters like simultaneously be like opening a witch's bottle full of, like, mysterious herbs and then, like, get an annoying text. Like, that's funny to me. It's entertaining. Um, And I think part of it is, like, I'm a die-hard, die-hard Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. (laughs) I have been since I was 11 years old. It's, like, the closest thing I have to a religion. I just love it so much. And, like, Buffy is that, right? It's, like, it's teenagers in high school, in Southern California and it's like ancient grimoires and vampires and demons. Um, and I just think it's a really fun combo.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that is one thing that the book is, even though it's dealing with serious things like generational trauma and tragedy, there's also a lot of fun on these pages. There's, I mean, anytime you've got a con man pickpocket, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I'm on board. I, I, I love, I love somebody who like, Isaac is a great character that I feel like I you know my top 20 list is littered with people like him um making up their pages but one of my absolute favorite characters is a late breaking one and you know I know the book hasn't come out yet I want you guys to be looking forward to this character um Winifred uh I don't want to give too much away because it's so exciting how she comes into the Frey, but I do feel like it was an interesting challenge to bring this character I mean she it's almost halfway through the book that this character that's so important shows up can you talk about that a little bit I mean I I know we're in dangerous ground here
0: yeah totally so Winifred I love that Winifred's a fan favorite because Um, I really struggled with characterizing her for a long time. She really didn't find her footing until one of the later drafts of the book. And she was kind of a cardboard cutout in many of the early drafts. You know, without giving too much away about how she arrives on the scene, she's sort of my spin on a golem character. And so it was really challenging for me to be like, how do I characterize someone who is simultaneously like a human girl, but also like a part of the earth and sort of made of stone. (laughs) And uh, eventually I figured it out and she's this really playful, really uh, sensory kind of lively character. And especially given that Isaac and Bellatine are both like kind of sad sacks, (laughs) it was really fun to have her show up on the scene and like bring a little sunshine in. Um, And yeah, in terms of why she shows up halfway through, I think I just couldn't find another place to put it. Like I was thinking of putting her earlier for a while, but I realized like more had to happen before she was ready to arrive. You know, it would have, wouldn't have worked to put her later because she's so vital. So it, it was sort of one of those like Tetris situations where I was like, these things need to happen before Winifred shows up. Um, and also it's like, I don't know, it's kind of fun to get halfway through a book and then get to meet someone new. Um, yeah which yeah and i i'm really proud of how she turned out and one of the fun things about winifred is um she's she's real um she is a girl a car she is a stone carving of a girl in the cemetery next to my house here in
1: oh wow
0: yeah and she in the book she's based in baltimore um, but I actually placed her there because that's where Isaac and Bellatine were in their journey and she just had to be in Baltimore, but she, she's actually a real tombstone girl who is right, right outside. And I visit her often. Wow. And one of the, Actually, I have to tell you a crazy story. This, this blew my mind. I hope it blows all of your minds too. I was deep in editing mode and it was deep in lockdown. So, you know, I was spending significantly more time with these people I made up than with any real people, which does a thing to a person. Yeah. (laughs) And I was trying to flesh out Winifred's character a little bit more and I was feeling stuck. So I decided I was going to go for a walk around the cemetery, visit Winifred's grave and see if going for a walk jogged anything loose like it sometimes did. And so I get to Winifred's grave, and I I notice that there's something in her hands. Um, and I, like, climb up on the little pedestal, and I reach into her hands. And what I find is a nickel that has been pressed on a railroad track.
1: No way!
0: Yes way. Now, do you <laughs> want to tell the listeners why that is an insane thing for me to have found in her hands?
1: That's an insane thing to have found, because Isaac... Is putting nickels on railroad tracks in this book? That's something that happens elsewhere in your in your narrative. That's exactly. so wild.
0: Yeah. So in in the book, these train press nickels are Isaac's calling card. He leaves them wherever he goes in exchange for the things he steals. So yeah. As soon as I found this, I was like, Oh my God! Are they are they real? Yeah. Did I make them? Re- is he here? <laughs> like.
1: yeah Yeah, now now that makes me wonder what he stole from Winifred and left like what was he leaving that behind for
0: that is a very good question (laughs) I truly like on my walk home like was looking over my shoulder half expecting him to be there
1: I know it almost seems like some like a trick that someone was like playing on you like
0: but no one knew
1: but how could they because it was you know like a fan could have done it if they were going back in time after they read the book
0: That's true. Can't rule that one out for sure.
1: I feel like Winifred and the way she appears on the page is sort of very similar to, and I don't know if I would have made this connection um, without you recommending this book, but it felt like something that, uh, like a Kelly Link sort of um, detail of, of just like this, not only the, does this work but then you actually have to deal with the consequences and the consequences aren't just like horrible they're interesting and there's uh, a character to get to know um i love that you brought to me kelly Link's first uh, story collection magic for beginners um to read after i read thistlefoot because it did seem i felt like it was i was getting a slight amount of like the codex to who you are or maybe one of your um main inspirations is that accurate
0: yeah absolutely i one of the greatest honors of my life is that the cover blurb of thistlefoot is from kelly link like i cannot express how much that means to me so kelly link has been my favorite author since i was 22. um she my my head thesis professor in college on my graduation day as a gift, gave me Stranger Things Happen and was like, I think you need to read this woman. She writes the way that you think. And I was like, okay, Heather, whatever. And then I read this book and I I cannot explain how uncanny it was the first time I ever read Kelly Link. I have never in my life experienced reading something where I I literally felt like I was reading the inside of my own brain. Mm. Um, and no other author that I've ever read. And I have so many beloved authors, you know, but something about Kelly Link's work and the way that Kelly Link thinks and writes is like, it's, it feels like my first language, you know, like it feels like something that I'm so fluent in on like a very deep, deep level that, yeah, I mean, she's a huge influence on me and has been for the past decade. Um, she is, I feel, yeah, she's my favorite author. I, I, Can I sing her praises to everyone I meet? Um, And it's this interesting chicken and the egg thing where in certain ways, she is a huge influence on my work. And in certain ways, the reason I love her work so much is because it already feels so much like the work I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah. So I I always get I get nervous now that she uh, knows about me and reads things that I write because I'm like, oh, my God, she's going to think I'm like copying her. But I swear (laughs) I was already writing like this. And that's why I love her so much. But yeah,
1: I think I misspoke. I think I said um, that Magic for Beginners was her debut collection and Stranger Than Fiction was her first. Stranger Things Happen. Stranger. Yes. Stranger Things Happen was her first. Some of these stories though, in Magic for Beginners, I, I was so surprised to read that they're tw- uh, almost 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are 20 years old. And it just felt like, it didn't feel like they were. They felt completely as vital and as like they, in the modern contemporary style, at, mm-hmm. which I believe is because not unlike you, uh, a lot of people are now walking around with Kelly Link stories in their head before they start writing stories. Um, or the opposite for you.
0: But yeah, I think she was a huge, um, I think she's a huge influence on the contemporary literary scene and why we're seeing so much weird fiction coming out now. You know, it, she was absolutely one of the groundbreakers there.
1: So what made you um, suggest magic for beginners in particular?
0: It just has some of my absolute favorite, favorite, favorite stories in it. Um, I love The Fairy Handbag, which is the opening story in there. And it actually, I felt like, has uh, some parallels with Thistlefoot in that it's also about this small town in which something pogrom-like takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love uh, the... Li- is it the library? Is that... The- no, Magic for Beginners, the, the titular story, which is about a, a strange TV show called The Library, which I think is actually based on Buffy. Um <laughs> And yeah, I don't, I just, I think it's my favorite one or like kind of the one that has some of my most beloved stories in them. It's hard to choose though, because I love all of her books. Um, her most recent short story collection, uh, Get in Trouble, has one of my favorite ghost stories of all time in it, um, oh. which is Two Houses. It's super oh. weird and creepy. <laughs>
1: I, you know, I think it is, it's tough to be creepy without being scary um, and I think she is really a master of that. She's also, one thing that I was noticing this time through, I am so glad to be rereading her, um, I, because I never reread these short story collections as collections. I read them as like, oh, I want to go and reread cat skins or something, but I just read this, um, you know, front to back. I actually listened to a lot of it read, which was really nice Um, the audiobook, Each story is read by a different reader which is very, um, it's a lovely way to re-experience these stories, but it made me realize how much she's a master of uneasy friendships Hmm. where it's like, do these two people want to be friends with each other or are they just, is this just the only friend around?
0: Totally. Yeah. And I think the way that people relate to each other in her work, it adds to that sense of the uncanny that she's cultivating, that, that chafing uncomfortable, right. The, the the spooky but not scary but not spooky in like a i don't know michael's craft store kind of way (laughs) right (laughs) not spirit halloween exactly as passionate as i am about spirit halloween (laughs) i would never bash them (laughs) but um but yeah her the way that the characters relationships are so awkward and chafing just makes that uncanniness uh the and the uncanniness of the magical realism in it feel all the more strange and off-kilter, I guess.
1: I think some of that off-kilterness comes from something that you were kind of saying that novels can't do or it's hard for them to do where they they just like put out the idea just as is. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's pretty good at just being like this is how this is happening. Totally. And it's like three sentences and you're just like, it's this, um, I wrote my notes says matter of fact surrealism, where you're just like, Oh yeah, that is, I guess, how it is. And I saw that also paralleled in your work with um the bit of universe building where everything is basically our universe except for Baba Yaga's house isn't the only like sort of alive house. You give these really lovely, exciting, um, pictures of like there are other alive houses in this universe kind of um and it it really like that echo in your work was really um it became apparent after I was reading these
0: yeah totally and for me that's what i love about the genre about like magical realism in general is i really it allows us to take our reality and basically just turn up the volume knob a little bit and the way i think about it is the feelings and experiences of the characters, which if they lived in our reality would just be their internal landscapes and not affecting their external landscapes in magical realism or in some of these like weird fiction genres can physically manifest in the logic systems of the world. So Mm -hmm. if a character is feeling something, that feeling is then mirrored in the physical world that they inhabit. So to me, like, People always ask me, "It's like, wow, you know, it doesn't this is such a weird thing that you've written?" Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm like, it actually feels much more harmonious to what it feels like to be a person because it means that for once, the external world that these people live matches their internal world. Where for me, there's this constant dissonance between kind of the magical thinking and the emotional landscape of myself internally. And then the exterior landscape, which does not have that same pathetic fallacy (laughs) at play. Um, So yeah, so the weirder fiction is often the more I'm like, oh, yes, that is how it feels to be a person. Correct.
1: (laughs) So I promise this question isn't a trick question. I'm not trying to make it got you because I don't actually it sounds like I have an opinion on this, I think by the question, um, but I don't have an opinion myself, but how do you feel about an ending of a short story that's not an ending? Where Where do you land on that? Yeah.
0: I feel great about it. I love, I, I mean, I love a story that is a vibe, you know, and I don't think, you know, with a novel, I feel like I kind of want to see it stick the landing um, because you've spent all of this time on the buildup. Um, with a short story, I really think that they can be more like a poem in that it is a moment in time that makes you feel something or experience something. And it doesn't necessarily need to be about the plot. Um, and, you know, Kelly's work is a great example of, she is a writer who, um, her stories don't always have endings that answer anything. Right. Um, and it was interesting for me, I was reading some of her earlier work recently, um, and you can tell that she used to try to end stories when she was younger and then was like, wait a second, I don't have to do this. <laughs> and it they only got stronger, you know? Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that uh, some, it depends on the story you're writing, of course, you know, like some stories are about plot and the plot should be honored. Some stories are all all about the vibes, baby. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we gotta
0: honor the vibes.
1: A few of these stories are very vibey, I th- but there is there's one story in this collection. I'm going to call it out. I'm going to s- stone animals in this collection. I just feel like I was like, this is a not like this is a novel, like, go back and continue on because I want to know more about these rabbits. I need to know more about the many stories underground of the house. And I but also I've been walking around, you know, writing that in my head myself. So maybe it worked because I can't stop thinking about it. And if there had been an ending that she was like, yeah, and it's just like the borrowers, the end, um, I would have also been disappointed. So I don't know.
0: I always think that in any writing, really, in any genre, like answers are the devil, You know, you want you want a reader to be left with more questions than they have answers, because questions continue in the mind beyond the closing of of the book, where an answer is a closed, sealed box. Um, And with with Link's work, I also I think of them as almost like a dream. Like you wake up from this strange dream and you're left with these images and these sensations and these like scraps of a narrative that like sometimes fit together and sometimes don't. And then you're left to make sense of that. And all you know is the way that you're left feeling when you're done. And that is really exciting to me.
1: One thing that she does is nest stories, like a story will nest inside of another one. And I feel like I saw that in your work as well. I wanted to know about puppets. What, what, why puppets? What holds, because of course, you know, since people have been putting plays in plays and stories within stories, but the, the puppets within uh, yours, like why, <clears throat> what draws you to puppets in particular?
0: So in Thistlefoot, Foot, uh, Isaac and Bellatine are performing their Family's traveling act that were, was their parents' puppet show that they grew up helping out on and sometimes performing. And so nested within Thistlefoot, you see these excerpts or kind of hear told these excerpts of this puppet show. And in part, I just really love puppets. And I, as a Vermonter, I have a disproportionate number of friends who are puppeteers. Um. Um, so puppets are just like kind of a large part of my consciousness on a daily basis um which is fun and (laughs) so yeah I mean I I love puppetry as an art form because I think it has it has a similar effect as the genre that I write in right where it's it's lifelike but it's not fully alive it's got this like surreal animated quality to it but it's also physically bodied in space it you know just like the juxtaposition we were talking about with Baba Yaga the juxtaposition um You know, the the, of uh, the these characters of Kelly Lynx that the chafing Mm -hmm. that they create. I think that puppetry exists in that same liminal space where they're sort of of our world, but they're sort of of this other world. And so they feel very uh, otherworldly, very supernatural. And I think that's why a lot of people are creeped out by puppets is because they have that uncanny valley quality to them. Mm. In terms of the Drowning Fool segments in Thistlefoot, which are the excerpts from the puppet show that Isaac and Bellatine are performing, it allowed me to have an opportunity to do the just say it outright moments, Mm -hmm. uh, where they can perform these little allegorical plays that mirror what is going on for the characters in that moment. Um, And that kind of goes back into my poetry brain, where Mm. it's much easier for me to write something by just like, writing a metaphor that just shows you exactly what's going on uh and so yeah it was just fun to be able to create these like sort of strange a little spooky parallels in in puppet form
1: yeah i mean i will say that you don't use them to be like creepy though spooky sure but you're not trying these aren't like chucky or something you know and i
0: mean (laughs) find puppets creepy. I think they're beautiful. I love them. (laughs) I mean, and that's why I work with them uh, on my tours as well. Like I collaborate with puppeteers all the time. I'm actually writing a show in collaboration with Sandglass Theater right now, which is an incredible puppetry company here in Putney, Vermont. And uh, yeah, in my tour now I'm working with these puppets. I I think they're beautiful and inspiring and yeah, I, I don't find them creepy
1: (laughs) so this is i mean this is as good a time as any to say like you need to catch jenna rose while she is on tour for thistlefoot because you are doing an actual it's not just you standing up there reading apart from the book and then having everybody line up to sign you are going to be putting on a show
0: I will be putting on a show and what a show it will be. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's what I've been up to the last month is rehearsing this show. It's a combination of cranky theater, which for those unfamiliar with crankies, they are this folk art puppetry technique where you have a scroll that sits in a box. And when you turn a crank on the top of the box, this panoramic scroll pans across uh, like kind of like a TV opening in the front of the box. So it's this very rudimentary animation of watching this this scroll pan and the scroll has various images on it. So there's cranky stuff that's animating sections of the book. There are also handheld puppets. Um, there's a, you know, I have a beautiful Baba Yaga puppet, puppet which we can get a photo of uh, for you all to see. And I, to me, it's also this excuse for, well, for one, you know, writing is, It's sitting in your room a lot with a laptop. (laughs) Right. And so going on tour, going on like these big wild tours is an excuse for me to be out in the world, meeting people, connecting with them through the story and not in like a way that maybe they would have seen before or experienced before, Uh, you know, by adding this puppetry element, it enlivens the story in a way that just like a regular reading wouldn't. Um, And it also gives me the opportunity to collaborate with some of the most brilliant people that I know. So in the case of the Thistlefoot tour, I am collaborating with my friend Maria Pugnetti, whose artist moniker is Woolly Marr. She was also the artist I teamed up with on the Lumberjack's Dove. For Lumberjack's Dove, she made a hand-cut, hand-turned, 60-foot-long shadow cranky. Wow. Uh, it was incredible. Yeah. And for Thistlefoot, it's even bigger. She's doing five, well, four, she's she's doing four crankies um, for four different stories that get switched out. I kind of mix and match them. Um, and then I'm also collaborating with Shoshana Bass, who is the co artistic director of the Sand Glass Theater. Like Isaac and Bellatine, Shoshana Bass was raised in a touring puppetry family. And the descriptions of the puppets in The Drowning Fool are actually based on Sandglass Theater's puppets. Um, So Shoshana built My Beautiful Baba Yaga puppet and she also directed the production. So yeah, it was just a super exciting opportunity to work with some friends and then to take the work of these local, incredible local artists and showcase them on a national level, which is really fun.
1: Wow, that is so exciting. I am going to recommend to everyone to see if you are coming through their their local bookstore because that seems like an incredible thing to see.
0: If you go to my website or any of my social medias, my tour schedule is listed there, but I'm still actively adding new uh, spots to the tour. So if any of you have a venue that you think would be a great fit for this, particularly venues with funding, um, please feel free to reach out to me and I can try to get the show out your way.
1: Awesome. So I'm going to recommend that everybody check that out and check out your website and, and definitely try and see you while you are on this tour and maybe it's time to just move into recommendations in general, uh, do you have anything you want to recommend to the to the good listeners of so many damn books?
0: Recommendations. There's so much good stuff out there. So I do have a recommendation. Um, I think it's so exciting that fall is upon us. I await it every year. It is my season. I, I come into my power in the fall. Um, and Thistlefoot, I think is a very autumn-y book too. One of my favorite things in the fall is to drink cozy, fancy teas. Mm -hmm. Like literally all of my dishes are like fancy tea party dishes. So, (laughs) you know, I even have like the multi-tiered plate. I have friends over for like fancy high teas all the time. It's a whole thing. Um, Speaking my language. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll have to get tea sometime, Christopher. (laughs) Um, And specifically... I really recommend there's this tea company called August Uncommon Tea. I'm not being like paid by them or whatever. I just like really fucking like this tea. Um, And what's really, they they have really interesting, delicious tea blends and flavors. Um, And what's really fun, which I did last year, is you can buy sample sized Bags of their tea that are like four cups of tea worth. So I ended up buying like 15 different kinds of tea and then each day would sample a different tea. Um, and I would play this game. I recommend, if you do this, I'm going to recommend my tea game to you as well, <laughs> which is okay. Christopher, when you were a kid, did you ever do? This thing where you, if you had like a collection of things and you were like, I'm going to find my favorite, you would do basically the bracket method where you're like, let me compare these two stickers and see my favorite. And that one gets to the next round, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Beanie Baby rankings. How else do you do it than that? But yeah,
0: there is no way. I mean, did you ever who won out in your Beanie Baby ranking?
1: Oh, probably um, Nanook, the um, the wolf dog uh, that, you know, the Nanook of the North. <laughs> of
0: course, <laughs> Naturally, an alpha, baby, if ever there was one. For uh, sure. So, So I recommend this same bracket method if you get a whole pile of little sample teas. And then every day you're like, what is today's like winning tea? And then if you have mm. friends over for tea, you can have them do the little bracket and it becomes like a whole a whole situation. And then you get to have like a very fancy, delightful little pot of tea at the end.
1: Yeah. I mean that's a that's a that's fall madness right there. Exactly. (laughs) It's T ranking. I really like it. Yeah. Well, I am going to recommend "Light from Uncommon Stars" by Rika Aoki. Have you heard of this book?
0: I have not. Tell me more.
1: It's about a few different things, but it's about a a violin, um, a trans violinist who is running away from home and falls in with this uh, woman who is collecting souls for the devil. And so she has gonna take on this um, student and hopefully trade her soul. And on the other, that's only part of the book. The other part of the book is an intergalactic story with a um, spaceship that is currently, doubling as a donut shop. And if these things interest you, <laughs> just read this book. It is so sweet and winning and frustrating. It's one of these things where I actually like um texted friends in a huff like out of anger about something that happened in a book, um which doesn't happen all that often. But yeah, I was so pleasantly surprised by how much I absolutely adored Light from uncommon stars. Um, I also recommend the audiobook. It was a great listen. And I also highly one hundred percent recommend Thistlefoot. Really, It is one of the my absolute favorite things I've read so far this year. Um, it is completely unexpected. And for all that we've talked about the book, I don't think we've even touched on so many things because there really is, it's, it's, there's just so many ideas. You really are, you're going through them all. I just felt like there was ideas on every single page, sometimes many per page that were just like, would send me into another imaginative reverie. So I really appreciate you um, writing this incredible book. And I also really recommend going and buying a sticker from books.com slash merch. I have stickers for sale. Also, Patreon.com slash SMDB is where you go to support the show. And, of course, iTunes reviews. Leave iTunes reviews for the things you listen to, you guys. It's really nice when people do that. General, Rose, thank you so much for coming thank and you. hanging out with me. This has been a total blast. And I, I love all of your work. Really, the, I, I love the Jenna Rose Nethercot Library, and I'm excited for any time you add another volume to it.
0: Thank you so much, Christopher. I'm so glad we finally got to do this.
1: <laughs> me too. Well, I, uh, I will be back in two weeks. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Jenna
0: Thanks for having me.